The subtitle of our sermon series in the New Testament book of James is Passionate and Practical. The reality of those two words are never more vibrant and vivid than in our passage this morning. When Pastor James talks about money, he is both passionate and practical. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to James chapter 5. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 5, I want to speak to you on the topic of money matters. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. With the disposition of an Old Testament prophet, James calls some of his original audience to repent. When he writes... Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. If you're not careful, you can skim and skate right past these six verses. Thinking to yourself, I'm glad I'm not rich. Because if I was rich, then James has some harsh words to say to those rich people. Friend, need I remind you? that we not only live on the wealthiest nation on the planet, but we also live in the wealthiest nation in all of human history. There is no nation like the United States of America when it comes to our financial prosperity. There are a lot of people throughout the globe that do not live like you or me. In fact, this morning, there are many people waking up in Uganda, and they will survive today on less than $10. 43% of the population of Somalia will eke out an existence today on less than $1. Abject poverty is normal for a lot of people in this world. In fact, the studies tell us that more than 3 billion of the world's population, that's equivalent to nearly 40% of anyone living on the planet, will live today on less than $2.50. Now, you and I will spend more than $2.50 on a Coke and candy bar at the gas station this afternoon. And there are 3 billion people living in this world on a daily basis less than $2.50. 
Now, some of you are thinking right now, but pastor, you're comparing apples to oranges. Because we live in America, and Americans have a different standard of living than the rest of the world. And so, when I compare myself with my American neighbors, I am not rich. Let's stop and think about that statement just for a moment. It is true that in America we have a very high standard of living. The annual median household income in America is $61,000. Now, we do not live in the wealthiest state in the Union because here in Alabama, the annual median household income exceeds just a little more than $43,000. Oh, but I need to be quick to add that we do happen to live in the wealthiest county in the state of Alabama because Shelby County touts an annual median income that exceeds $74,000, which is greater than the national average. Therefore, that causes me to pause just a moment and think to myself, maybe we might be wealthier than we first thought. If somehow I could transport some of James's original audience into your house or my house today, they would be overwhelmed by our wealth. In fact, if a first century friend showed up on your doorstep and you gave him a guided tour of your establishment, he would say, you mean to tell me that your house is more than one room? You mean to tell me that all you have to do is flip a switch on a wall and all the candles in your ceiling turn on automatically? Are you telling me that you have closets full of clothes that you don't even wear in any season of life? And you have more than one chariot that you park in your driveway? Are you meaning to tell me, he would ask, that you have 24 hour a day, seven day a week entertainment that comes from that flat screen box hanging on your wall. And somehow you've managed to pipe in water into your house. And all you have to do is turn a faucet and water starts dripping in the sink. And you, my friend, you've got a fantastic room. You can go in that room and do your business. And then all of a sudden, flush a little lever and all of the waste magically disappears. That's awesome. And you mean to tell me that you have a box that keeps your food from spoiling and your ice from melting? And you've got some apparatus attached to this house that forces cold air in the summer and warm air in the winter so that your house's temperature is regulated 365 days a year? And if our first century friend asked you, do you have all of this? You would have to say, yes, I do. And then our visitor from the first century would conclude that you are wealthier than any king or queen he's ever seen. 
It's at this moment that I hear the words of Kurt Richardson in his commentary on the book of James who says this passage ought to send tremors through every American Christian. This passage, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, ought to send tremors through every single one of us. Certainly, we may not have all the wealth that we want, but certainly we have more than enough wealth that we need. Oh, we can hear the echoing of Jesus in the words of James, can't we? Because James, the little brother of our Lord, can remember the Samonic stories that Jesus told his parables. Forty of them are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not one parable is found in the Gospel of John. But 40 parables are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. More than half of them are about how to handle money. This is a terrific topic. It is a topic that all of us must wrestle with so that we hear Jesus say that our self-worth is not equivalent to our net worth. The Bible has a lot to say to the bank account. And let me be very clear. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the wealth that you hold in your hands. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with the wealth that you hold in your hands so long as that wealth does not hold your heart. So now we hear this scathing indictment from Pastor James. Why is James so upset? Why is he upset with the rich people in the crowd? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. One is uh, he indicts them on the way that they were using wealth, verses 1, 2, and 3. And he indicts them on the way they were obtaining their wealth, verses 4, 5, and 6. So it has something to do with the way they were using their wealth and something to do with the way they were obtaining their wealth that caused James to say, now look and listen, you rich people. Weep and wail in repentance because of the misery that is soon to come upon you. So first let's tackle the way they were using their wealth. I've been told that you cannot hide money. And in James's context, wealth was revealed in grain, and garments and gold. James says that the people listening to him in his audience, in his congregation, they had more grain than they knew what to do with. They had more garments than they could ever wear. They had more gold than they could really ever use in their lifetime. They built storehouses to store the grain. They had closets to uh, keep all the garments. They had garages so they could park all their gold. They had so much grain, so many garments, and so much gold. And James indicts them saying that your grain is rotting. And your garments are becoming moth-eaten. And your gold is corroding. Check this out. They have so much grain they can't eat it all before it spoils. 
They have so much grain in their cupboard. They have so much food to spare. There's no way they can store it all properly. So it begins to rot before they could consume it. And they have so many clothes, so many closets, so many boxes that those garments were becoming moth-eaten because they had more than they could ever wear. And James, in a, in a bit of hyperbole, says their gold was even corroding, that their chariots were rusting in the driveway. They had so much stuff, they couldn't use it. And because it wasn't being used, it was beginning to corrode. All kinds of things. In fact, uh, James says that this excess was testifying against them. I've heard that money talks. Have you heard that? Money talks. That's what I've always been told. And according to James chapter 5, money does talk. It can either testify for you or it can testify against you. And friend, if you could listen to your money and if I could listen to my money talk today, would it testify for us or against us? According to James 5, it testified against those rich sinners in the church. Why? Because they were wasting their wealth. That the money would actually say, set us free. Set me free. I could be better utilized by somebody else. You are keeping me for your own good when it should be used for somebody else. Oh, I wonder if your money could talk and if my money could talk, would it testify for us or against us? James says that in this case, it was testifying against them. The indictment comes in verse 3. You have hoarded wealth. Now, once again, let's be very clear. James is not saying it's a bad idea to save for a rainy day. I think James would agree that it is a it's a good idea to have a savings account. Everybody needs to have a savings account. Most of us say we don't have enough money in our savings account. But I think it's a good idea to have a savings account for a rainy day, something unexpected, an emergency, a crisis that could pop up. James is not saying it's a bad idea to have a savings account. But he's saying that this excess is so grotesque. It is so obscene that the people had become hoarders of God's wealth. Too much, too, too extravagant, no, no, no way you could spend all of this. They just kept piling, stockpiling all of their wealth. The hoarding heart is the antithesis of God's heart. The heart of God is one of generosity, it is one of giving, it is one of sharing. It is one of benevolence. There is nothing greedy or selfish about God or his heart. And so the hoarding heart is the antithesis. It's the opposite of the heart of God. So when you give generously and when you give joyfully and when you give extravagantly, you are mimicking the heart of God because God's heart is a generous heart. And so when you give, you are resembling your Father in heaven. The indictment against these rich people is that they had money to spare and they were hoarding it for themselves. This is the epitome of selfishness. What James is telling that congregation, I tell this congregation this morning. James is asking what I ask of you. Do you have extra grain? 
because I know people in this community, I know people in this congregation who could use it. So next month, we're going to partner with the Shelby Baptist Association and have a canned food drive. Can you bring some of your extra grain to help somebody else in need? Do you have any extra garments? Because I know people who could use those extra garments. It's a great time to go through the closet, begin to take out those things that you just do not wear. There's no, there's no way you are going to wear all of this. And you can partner with some of our mission ministry partners like Jimmy Hale, Oak Mountain Ministries. You can help those that are less fortunate simply by taking some of your garments that you're never going to wear and give them to somebody else. Do you have any gold that's corroding? Right now, I know of a family in our faith family who desperately needs a car. And you just might have an extra car that's corroding in the garage. I wonder, is, is there anybody who has some extra grain? Anybody who has some extra garments? Anybody have extra gold? Because we know some individuals, we know some people in this community. They could use some grain to eat and garments to wear and gold to drive. So I wonder, what would your wealth say? I hear the echo of big brother Jesus in that great sermon on the mount when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot break in and, and thieves cannot break in and destroy and steal. For where your heart is, that's where your treasure is also. I hear the words of Jesus when it comes to this topic of generosity. And let me ask you this, um, how have you settled the matter of generosity in your heart? I, for one, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with how generous I am to be. I think that every Christian, every Christ follower, especially in our culture of self-indulgence, has to wrestle with, God, how generous should I be? Not how generous am I comfortable being, but how generous do you want me to be? Perhaps the most helpful words that I've come across were originally penned by C.S. Lewis. That brilliant mind simply wrote this. I do not know if I can settle the matter of generosity. When it comes to how much I ought to give to God and to others, the only safe rule I have is that I've got to give more than I can spare. Generosity, Lewis wrote, ought to pinch me a little bit. Because if my generosity to God doesn't pinch me, then my gift is far too small. Friend, let me ask you. When it comes to your generosity, to the life and work and ministry of this church, First Baptist Church Pelham, when it comes to you giving your tithes and offerings unto the Lord on a regular basis, weekly, monthly, yearly, when it comes to your generosity, does it pinch a little bit? 
when it comes to your anticipated level of financial involvement in the D&D challenge. Because I know that many of you have already concluded and decided this is the level of my involvement in the D&D challenge. You've got the card. You know it's coming next Sunday. You're going to fill out the card, deposit the card next Sunday, pledging and committing this much for the next year. But does your level of involvement in the D&D challenge hamper you any? When it comes to your generosity towards other people that are less fortunate than you, does that ever tighten your personal budget? Does your generosity pinch you? Does your generosity hamper you? Are there things that you really want to do, wish you could do, uh, places to go, things to see, projects to undertake? But because of the level of your generosity, you're precluded from doing it. Is there anything that you wish you could do that you can't do simply because you are just so generous? generous? Or do most of us just do pretty much everything that we want to do and just give God a tip of what's left over? I wonder, friend, does your generosity pinch you? Does it hamper you? Does it squeeze and tighten your budget even more than otherwise it would be? C.S. Lewis says that if I don't feel the pinch, then my gift is far too small because all I'm giving is what I can spare. I've told you before that bears repeating that the most generous person I have ever come across is a man named O.D. Hawkins. O.D. and his sweet wife, Miss Bessie, were in the first church I ever pastored, First Baptist Church, Owenton in Owenton, Kentucky. O.D. Hawkins was a retired World War II colonel who, incidentally, could still fit into his uniform at the age of 92. One day he told me that I promised myself I would never let myself go. And I said, why? He said, because I never want to disgrace this uniform. I'm going to wear it all the days of my life. And so he would usually come on Memorial Day or Fourth of July, sometime throughout the year, and he would have on his uniform, all highly decorated because in World War II, he faithfully served this country in China. In fact, uh, he slept uh, with soldiers guarding him because there was a bounty on his head. He told me afterwards, obviously afterwards, but he told me um, there were times when he came back home and when, we, when he was in bed with Miss Bessie that she would roll over. She would jump in her sleep and that would cause him to jump up because he was still thinking that he was in China somewhere. Oh, he faithfully served our country. He loved God. He faithfully served the Lord. It wasn't uncommon for Odie and Bessie to invite the family to dinner. They loved Jane Ellen and me and the children. Every year, O.D. and Bessie would take Jane Ellen and me to a University of Kentucky football game of our choosing. Why? Because he was a season ticket holder for some 40-plus years 
Friend, you want to talk about misery. That is a picture of misery, to be a ticket holder for Kentucky football for 40-some years. We saw some great teams play, just wasn't Kentucky's teams, but we saw some great teams come into Commonwealth Stadium and play the game of football. Every year we went to a game. On more than one occasion, I would just go visit him on his farm. We would ride over the rolling Kentucky hills on his gator. It was on one of those gator visits that he confided in me about his generosity. He said that he and Miss Bessie had set a financial ceiling to their standard of living. What that meant was they had set a dollar amount that they would never exceed on spending for themselves, their family, just life within a given year. He was almost embarrassed to tell me the amount. He said it was $40,000. He was embarrassed because he thought that was far too excessive. He said, Pastor, I don't owe anybody anything. I don't have any debt. How in the world do me and Miss Bessie spend $40,000 a year? I have no idea. But that's the ceiling that we put on it. We made a promise to God, he said. Anything you give over and above that will give away for your good, for your glory. Then a uh, grin of satisfaction spread across his face. He said, the last several years, Miss Bessie and me, we've taken in over $100,000 every year. Now, friend, I was educated in Kentucky, but even that bluegrass mathematics can conclude that he was giving away 60% of his annual income? I don't know very many people who live like that. Could you live on 40% of your annual income and give away 60% of your annual income? You're looking at me the way I look at OD. He could tell I had a befuzzled look on my face. And then he asked me a question that I shall never forget. Do you know why? God keeps giving us money. And before I could formulate an answer, he gave the reply. Because God can trust me. I will do with the money what I promised him I would do. Friend, can God, can God trust you with more money? Can God trust you with more? Oftentimes we say, I just need a little bit more. But if God gives you a little bit more, can he trust you with the way you spend it? Or would you somehow selfishly justify the expense on your standard of living? Let me ask it another way. Ever been times when you have received raises along the way? Were those raises just absorbed into your standard of living? Can God trust you can God trust me with more money there were many people that benefited from the generosity of O.D. and Bessie for starters uh, First Baptist Church Owenton but also Campbellsville University I think there's a building or two that uh, bears their name he gave a little bit to the University of Kentucky but he was quick to add they've got enough money they don't need mine he loved Gideon's International. 
he gave a significant amount there. He gave a lot of money to Red Cross. I don't know how much money he gave to complete strangers that showed up on his doorstep. Somehow, some way, strangers in a little country town of Owenton knew that if you go to that particular house, there's an old man and an old woman who love the Lord and they're generous and they just might help you. When I hear a story like that, when I read a passage like this, it forces me to ask the question, how do I use my grain, my garments, and my gold? Do I use my grain? Do I use my garments? Do I use my gold for God's good and for his glory? Or do I just use it for self-indulgence so that my money talks in a testimony against me and against you? James has a scathing indictment against the rich sinners in the crowd. Why? Because of the way they were using their money just on themselves. Secondly, James levels an indictment against the way they were obtaining their wealth. The gospel teaches us that we are to love people and use money, but these rich sinners were loving money and using people. He says, beginning in verse 4, look, it's emphatic. There's no exclamation point in the Greek text, but it's written in such a way that it's an imperative. It's a command. You look, look. The wages that should have been paid to those mowing your fields are crying out against you. In the first century, the working class was called day laborers. The reason they're called day laborers is because they work from day to day. And they got paid from day to day. In those days, there was no real promise of... Uh, full-time employment so people worked when work was available people get, didn't get paid at the end of the week or at the end of the month or twice a month they got paid at the end of every day they were day laborers they got they worked from day to day and they got paid from day to day God in the Torah makes provision for the day laborers when he says in a place like Deuteronomy chapter 24 that you are to pay them before the sun sets because they're counting on it. So in other words, if you're a child of God, you need to be timely with your bill payments. If you're a child of God, you need to righteously use the money that God has given to you. If you owe somebody something, you are to make good on it. But apparently, uh, the rich people in James's audience were promising to make payments, but they never actually made them. They took that money and were self-absorbed. They used it on themselves. James says they were getting fat off of the backs of those that were working with them and for them. The day laborers, they had no recourse. Usually in those days, the day laborers were uneducated, illiterate, unable to obtain land to own. And because of all that, they could not take anybody to court. They didn't have the resources to take anybody to court. They absolutely had no recourse. So 
we are told that the wages are crying out and the harvesters are crying out. Everybody in this passage is crying except those who should be crying, the rich and the famous, because the money is crying out, the harvesters are crying out, but the rich sinners, they need to weep and wail in repentance and they need to cry out. If any of the day laborers wanted to get together and try to take somebody to court, there's no way they would have won. Because in those days, the judicial system was built on the golden rule. You know the golden rule, don't you? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. So in this day, the judges were in the deep pockets of the rich folk. And so there was no way they were going to, they were going to judge a case against them. There was absolutely no hope for them. The only thing they could do is they could go to their pastor and they could speak and moan and groan about this social injustice. And Pastor James got upset and righteously they all went to God and they prayed for help and God was listening because God always listens. Just like the blood of Abel was crying out in Genesis 4 and God heard it. Just like the Israelites were crying out in Egypt in their suffering in Exodus chapter 2, and God heard it. So here in James 5, there was a social injustice, and the people, the harvesters, they cried out, and God heard it. God is not a judge who can be bribed. God is not a judge who can be bought off. He knows what's happening when uh, you uh, think everything is under the table, when you think everything is discreet. God knows everything. Friend, when it comes to you and your money, uh, you, you need to work as hard as anybody in the office. In fact, Christian, you ought to be the hardest worker in the office. Christ follower, you ought to be the most timely in your bill payments. And Christian, you ought to be the most honest when it comes to your income tax. Because that's how we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be like our God. The irony of all of this is that in about 10 years from the writing of James, the Romans will come in and confiscate all this property. The Roman government will come in and they will take over the city of Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, they will torch the temple. And all of this stuff, all this currency, all these possessions will be confiscated by the Romans. And these rich sinners that James is talking to, they should have been clutching Christ, but instead they were clutching their currency. And just a matter of a few years, all of that will be gone. Because James just said in the previous passage that your life is a mist. Life is a vapor, it's a puff of smoke. Here today, gone tomorrow, and so is money. So is wealth. Oh, one day there were uh, two friends that were watching a funeral procession go through town. The one friend said to his buddy, how much do you think that man left behind? And the buddy said to his friend, all of it. <laughs> you can't take it with you. He left all of it behind. You do realize that everything has the seed of destruction in creation. Everything. Life is fleeting. Money is fleeting. Everything is frail and fragile. It is a mist. It's a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. It's here today and gone tomorrow. At best, we are stewards of a junkyard. 
Yesterday's mansion, it's today's boarding house. It's tomorrow's slums. Yesterday's fashion, it's today's hand-me-down. It's tomorrow's gift to goodwill. We are stewards of a junkyard. And we cling to it as if it's something special. And really the reality is everything we have is fleeting. Everything we have here today and gone tomorrow. The only thing that's eternal is God Almighty. And we need to cling and clutch to Christ, not to our coins. So James reminds the church that in the Bible there is a great distinction between ownership and stewardship. Ownership says, this is mine. Stewardship says, this is his. Ownership says, all this belongs to me. Stewardship says, all this belongs to him. Ownership says, I've got to give 10% of my stuff to God. Stewardship says, he's only asking for 10% of his stuff back to him. Ownership says, look at what I've earned. Stewardship, look at what I've received. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Because everything you have, you've received from God, whether directly or indirectly. It is from Christ that I have life in this world and the next. It is from Christ that I have air in my lungs. It is from Christ that I have food on my table. It is from Christ that I have uh, clothing on my back. It is from Christ that I have a shelter over my head. It is from Christ that I have money in the bank account. It is because of Christ that I have days on my calendar. It is from Christ that I have friends and family to enjoy. Everything I have is because of Christ. I have nothing but Jesus owns me. So in the words of George Beverly Shea, I'd rather have Jesus more than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather be, have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus more than anything this world affords today. I don't own anything, but Jesus owns me. And James levels this indictment against the church. As I stop and think about it, I realize that every Christian living in our American culture has to wrestle with this issue of generosity. As C.S. Lewis says, I don't think any of us can settle the matter when it comes to how generous we ought to be. There ought to be a tension there ought to be a wrestling match. There ought to be a sanctified rub between what you have and what you give because you know that you're not an owner of anything. You're just a steward to what God has entrusted in your care. All of this is couched in Calvary, isn't it? It is God, the Father, who gave us everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not withhold anything from us. He gave the crown jewel of heaven. Jesus stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth so that you might be saved. And in response, we give everything unto him. Alexander White oftentimes prayed, God, everything I have, I give to you. But what I cannot give you, I invite you to come in and take. Can you pray that this morning? 
We want to say to God, everything I have, I give to you. But even as we voice those words, we have to come to the same conclusion as Alexander White, who says, even as I voice that, there are still some things that I clutch and cling, some things I hold on to, some things in the recesses of my mind and my heart that I'm not even aware of. So God, even those things, I invite you to come in and take because you're God and I'm not. So all to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation, and I pray that every born-again believer is wrestling right now with your Holy Spirit. When it comes, and I pray that every born-again believer is wrestling right now with your Holy Spirit. When it comes to this issue of, am I rich? Yeah, we've settled that. We are the rich. So then it becomes my, my grain, my garments, my gold, are they glorifying unto you? And Father, help us to have that holy conversation with you and where you show us areas where we are stingy and selfish. Lord, please help us to weep and wail in repentance. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know just the overwhelming benevolence of Christ. I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. We give you this invitation. We pray it all in Jesus' name.